I want to start this morning, uh, this morning's sermon with a question. And that question is this. What is the greatest thing about you? Now, you may not think of it in those terms. But imagine you're planning your funeral, and you're asking the people next to you about what to say, what they want to be remembered in your life. Or maybe you're thinking about what will be written on the tombstone or the obituary in the paper. Very often, of course, people just write their names and dates, but often they write something they want to be remembered for. Thomas Jefferson, one of the great Americans, of course, he designed his own obelisk, his own uh, tombstone and the inscription thereon, and he had three things listed that he wanted to be remembered for. Interestingly enough, none of those was being president of the United States. Uh, he had other things that he viewed as more important. What would it be for you, though? If you were designing that obelisk, that tombstone, and you were writing down what's the greatest thing about you, what your greatest achievement was, what you wanted to be remembered for, what would it be? I ask that question because we're going to be exploring that through the life of David. What is the greatest thing about you? We're going to be answering that as we look at what was the greatest thing about David. And if you haven't been here before, we've been spending quite a bit of time going through the life of David. In fact, there is more written about the life of David than any other person in the Bible, by far. Because David is not only the one who points ahead symbolically towards Christ, but he is also the one who symbolizes mankind in his relationship with Christ more than any other. And, uh, and so we're going to be, next few weeks, finishing up on this. We come today to a passage that I, I was tempted to title, to title simply this, The Greatest Thing About David. The Greatest Thing About David. It has a lot to tell us about what's really the greatest thing about us. Will you join me in prayer as we start? Father, I ask in your grace and your kindness that you give me the ability to explain things as you would want them explained that you'd help me to simply forget anything that I would say that would be wrong or unhelpful, but instead to remember and be able to explain well what you desire to say to your people, Lord. It is no coincidence that we are here today. It's not an accident that each one of us is in your house of worship hearing this sermon and this passage this morning. I believe it's a divine appointment. It's an appointment from you. But unless your spirit opens our eyes, we will probably miss the meaning of it and the purpose of it. So would you do that, please? Thank you, Father. Amen. Our text today, our story, is going to come right out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But instead of reading this, I'd like to go through and kind of paraphrase it, putting ourselves in the story a little bit. So 2 Samuel 7, I encourage you to look through that today or this week, make sure I'm getting it right. Okay, don't take my word for it. But I want us to kind of get the, the gist of this. 2 Samuel 7, David is at the height of his power and glory. He is now settled into his palace. He's settled into Jerusalem. He's settled into the kingship. The ark has been brought. The true king is there. And all is as right and as whole as it can be until the true king comes. He has watched and waited as God through circuitous ways and maddening delays, has finally fulfilled gloriously his promise that he would make David the king. Remember, 20 years before this, God had taken a little shepherd boy and had sent his prophet to anoint him and saying, you will be the shepherd over my people Israel. 
And now that is all fulfilled. David is at rest. The crown is secure. The border is expanding. Everything is right. As David walks from his throne room to his inner chambers in this palace of wood and stone patterned after the four. You know, the, the ark or the covenant, the true throne, the symbol of the presence of God is in a tent. And as he goes to sleep that night, this pleasant thought comes into his mind. I know what I can do for God. He calls Nathan the prophet the next morning. Nathan is his prophet and pastor. And he gestures to the walls and says, here I am living in this house of cedar. But the ark of God is in a tent. And, uh, and Nathan understands the, the understanding that David wants to create a temple for this God. You know, pastors love times like these. Like Nathan must have loved this. Then as now, most people's concern for God really doesn't extend much more beyond what God can do for them. Right? It's a lovely, it is a beautiful thing when someone makes the move of their heart to not what God can do for me, but what I can do for God. Not to be despised. This is a moment and a movement that pastors and prophets love. Nathan gives his blessing, a spiritual blank check. Do whatever you have in mind. That night as Nathan is doing his own musing with God, though, God withdraws the building permit. And Nathan, perhaps abashed, goes to tell David how God has evaluated this building project. And here's what God says, basically in verses 5 through 7 of 2 Samuel 7. David, would you build me a house to live in? I haven't lived in a house, a temple, since the day I bought and the day I brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and I've never asked for one. First things first. David, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't need what you have to offer I've never needed it. There may be a time when a temple is appropriate and needed or helpful, when my glory will be seen by all the nations. In fact, I will let one of your sons create this, but not you and not now. For you I have other plans. And then God goes on to rehearse all that he has done for David and all that he is doing. Remember, I took you from the sheep pen and from the open fields I made you prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off every enemy of yours, and I'm not done. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men of history. And through all this, I will make a place for my people Israel. I will plant them as my own vineyard, and evil men will disturb them no longer, and I will continue to give them rest, to give you rest over all your enemies. This is the middle of the dialogue. You know what? It's amazing here. 23 verbs carry the action of this monologue. And God is the subject of every one. This is what I have done. This is what I am doing. This isn't about what you are doing for me. But God's not done. God's never done. It's always deeper. God's grace is always stronger, always wider, always richer than we understand. David's about to learn that. There are places in the heart of a man or a woman 
hidden from everyone, even themselves perhaps only known to the Lord. I can't help but feel that this is one of these that God's about to speak into. You remember, David was brought in and replaced Saul. God, or David saw that God had taken his love and his calling from Saul because of Saul's disobedience. Saul's son never sat on his throne. Saul himself was removed. It must have gone through David's mind. How secure is my throne? Who will sit on it after me? Will it be one of my sons? Will it be someone else that God brings in? You know, in the 66 chapters devoted to the life of David, in the 77 Psalms, never once does David bring this up. I, I presume he didn't want to presume upon or encroach God's grace. It had to be on his heart. And God knew it. So after rehearsing all that God had done for him and God was doing for him, God now speaks of what he will do for him. And it is beyond David's wildest imaginations. I'm paraphrasing again. And there are verses 11 through uh, 16. I'm not finished, David. You want to make me a house, a temple. But I declare to you that I will make you a house. A dynasty is the idea, a house of David. It's a wordplay. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down in the grave with your father, I will raise up for you from your own offspring, your own body, a great king. I will do this. And he is the one who will build a house for me. More, I will never take my love and my calling from him, away from him as I did from Saul. If he rejects my ways, I will discipline him as a father to his son. But he will always be my son. He will always be the king over my people. And not just him. Not just him, David. I'm going to establish your house and your throne as an eternal kingdom before me. Your kingdom, your dynasty, your house will never end. Words are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ, the great descendant of David, and the one who will be the eternal king. Not only will the desire of his heart be fulfilled, but David hears that his own son will continue his reign. And God spoke somehow of this eternal throne, this eternal kingdom of David's lineage. What kind of God is this? He desires to do something great for God. God shuts it down, and God just pours out more grace. And David is stunned. He stumbles to the only place it makes sense at the moment. He, he goes to the tent where the ark of God has been put. And he sits. And he prays. And this may be the greatest thing that David ever did. When we pray, we often sit, right? Most of us, we usually sit. They didn't. Not in Bible times. And not in this culture. You stood to pray because that was a sign of your respect. You didn't, you didn't sit before a king. Or, or if you were especially in a, in a mood of, of worship or reverence, you would kneel or more likely lie down flat on the ground, on your belly. Because you're showing the great distance between you and God. This is the only time in all of Scripture why? I'm reading between the lines here, but I have to believe 
it's because the grace of God so overwhelmed him, it took his legs out from under him. And he, he just can't stand. And, and we get that, right? When you have to make the worst phone call of your life to someone, are you sitting down? Or when you have great news beyond compare, you might say it more, more festively and jokingly, hey, are you sitting down? i got to tell you something. And that's the idea. David, he, he sits before the, the ark of the Lord. He's just overwhelmed. And, and when he starts to pray, all he can do is start asking questions, basically. God, you've done all of this? Who am I? What is my family that you would do all this? And now you've spoken about all, all this to come in this eternal kingdom. Is this your way of dealing with man? He's overwhelmed. David sat because God's grace literally robbed him of his ability to stand. Who am I, Lord? And then he goes on in the final part of this prayer, and this prayer is in verses 18 through 28. And now what can I say? Not because of my actions, but because of your promise, you have done all this. Again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not reading word for word. What God is like you? And, and who is like your people Israel, whom you did great and mighty things for, redeeming them from Egypt and their gods, driving out the nations to settle them in this land of your promise? And now, God, do it. Do just as you have said. You have promised it, so I make bold as to ask you to fulfill it. Make your name great by doing just as you have said, establishing Israel as your own people for all the world to see, establishing David's house as king according to your gracious promise. For you, Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of David will indeed be blessed. Every line of this prayer to God is uttering with the wonder of what God is doing and because of this, I have confidence to pray for you. It, it, it's interesting. Most of the time, when we know God is going to do something, or he's always promised it, it, we view it as like, okay, I don't have to pray about that then. For David, for many other writers, the rationale for praying is that God has promised something. So now he's joining God in seeking this to become a reality. And we'll explore that in our life groups. That's one of the questions that, that we'll get to. Um, but for now, I don't want to lose the main thread. Why does God respond in this way? Why does God shut down the building project and instead just pour out grace? Why does he use this occasion to promise his eternal dynasty? You know what I think? I think David was just about to make the turn from focusing on what God had done for him to what he could do for God. And when any of us make that turn, we're ruined. There is nothing beyond grace. There's nothing besides grace. There's nothing to add to grace. Nothing you could do to pay grace back. Grace stands as the bare fact, the lone mountain on the eternal plane all around us. There is nothing, nothing we could ever do to make God our debtor. Nothing we could conceive of to give him that he needs. Nothing to pay back this free gift. Nothing we could do to earn grace by definition, by its very nature. It is not earned, nor earnable. A two-year-old than we do to pay back God or in this grace in any way. 
And when any of us lose sight that this is the most important thing about us, the greatest thing about us, we will distort the gift of God. We will distort it. Work done for God, any kind of work, easily, too easily replaces a gracious response to God. Work is not wrong. Work is a gift. Working for God, the greater gift. But focusing on the gift rather than living in gracious response to God will bring spiritual death. It will poison the apple. And I think that's what in danger. That's what David was in danger of. Let's stop here in our thoughts. That's what we're in danger of. Grace is so hard for us to receive because it's not the way the world operates. And even when we receive grace, our focus can begin to shift from what God has done for us to what we want to do for God and how we want to make our life a certain way the way that we want and the way that we think God wants, maybe. We're not more spiritual than David. If he had that tendency, we probably will too. We want to do great things for God, or at least really good things for God, right? We, we want to be good, godly spouses. We want to build this, this solid Christian marriage that's an evidence to other people of God's goodness. We, we want to launch our children as godly children, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and launching them like arrows out of the quiver into the needs of the world. We want to build this household of faith. We want to grow in holiness. We want to grow in godliness and scriptural knowledge. We want to bring others to Jesus Christ. We want them to know this gospel. We want to be a prayer warrior. We want to be a strong leader. We want to be a willing servant of God. We have these ideas in our mind of all that we can do for God, all that we want to be. None of those are wrong. Please, please don't misunderstand me. But unless God intervenes slowly, as slowly, as imperceptible, but as sure as the earth begins to tilt on its axis and brings one season into another, slowly our focus our thoughts are more upon what we're doing for God and how we can make this life what we want it to be rather than simply what God has done. We begin to think about what we're doing for him rather than what he's done. And we, like David, need a word of God. Maybe it's today's word saying, you know, I really don't need anything from you. I don't. I created you. I created every good thing about you. There's a right response to me, but I don't ever want the focus to be more upon what you're doing than what I've done. This is how God saves David from himself, by more grace. <laughs> this is always God's answer, more grace. You know, that's us. We have been given grace, and God is continuing to give us grace, but we need to step back and understand it and receive it again and again and again. Roland Hill was a, a well-known public figure in England, and once he was given a large sum of money, a large sum of money to give to this poor pastor. And uh, Roland Hill thought, okay, it may overwhelm the guy, it may not be to his good to just give him the whole thing at once. So he sent him a part of it, 
in an envelope with a note saying, more to come. And then a few weeks or months later, send a little bit more with that same note, more to come. And he did this again and again until the whole thing was dispersed. That's exactly what God does for us. He gives us grace. He's willing to forgive every sin we've ever committed by what he's done on the cross. He's willing to, to give us that grace of forgiveness. He, he lets his spirit live within us as a down payment until, what, until our redemption to come. He gives us more grace. He, he allows us the gift of prayer. He allows us to be brought into a community of imperfect, but, but other people like ourselves in a, in a church. He gives more grace. He answers our prayers. He gives more grace. There's more to come. God says, I'm not done yet. I'm not only going to redeem you from the penalty of your sin. I'm going to change you. And my promise to you is this, that if you are in me, if you have received my grace, then everything here on this life is going to find a redemption there. It will be a seed planted in the ground that will bring a harvest in the next life. This life is not all there is. This life is a segue. This life is a foyer to the life to come. And in that time, this is the great promise that you will be with God, that you will be like God, that you will reign with God, that you will have an intimacy and a joy and a union with God and with other people that we can scarce imagine now, and that everything in this life I will use to further that purpose. Romans 8, 28, right? God will more grace to come always. So, one question remains. How do we respond to this kind of grace? Okay, maybe we can't earn it. But how do, how do we respond to the, the kind of God who not only will forgive us our sins, but gives us such grace that everything in our life becomes what it should be? Not by our effort, but simply as a gift. I, I think there's, there's two ways. We don't earn this, but we can respond to it. The first have we come to a place of receiving this grace of salvation? Grace cannot be earned, but it can be received or rejected. It can be received or rejected because of either our disbelief or very often our feeling that what this is about is I have to be good enough. I have to achieve. How many of you were Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts as, as a kid? You know, did you earn any merit badges? Anybody remember that? All right. Max Lucado writes about this. Um, he, he writes, we accumulate good works the way Boy Scouts accumulate merit badges on a sash. I kept mine in a hook in a closet, not to hide it, but so I could see it. No morning was complete without a satisfying gander at the cummerbund of accomplishment. If you ever owned a Boy Scout merit badge sash, you understand the affection I felt. Each oval emblem rewarded my hard work. I paddled across the lake to earn the canoe badge, swam laps to earn the swimming badge, and carved a totem pole to earn the wood woodworking badge. Could anything be more gratifying than earning merit badges? Yes, showing them off. Which I did every Thursday when Boy Scouts wore uniforms to middle school. I strode through that campus like I was the king of England. The merit badge system tidies life. Achievements result in compensation. Accomplishments receive applause. Guys envied me, envied me, girls swooned. My female classmates barely kept their hands to themselves and only by the virtue of extreme self-control. I knew they secretly longed to run, run a finger over my signaling badge and ask me to spell their names in Morse code. He goes on. 
I became a Christian about the same time I became a Boy Scout, and I made the assumption that God grades on a merit system. Good Scouts move up, good people go to heaven. So I resolved to amass a multitude of spiritual badges, an embroidered Bible for Bible reading, folded hands for prayer, a kid sleeping in the pew for church attendance. In my imagination, angels feverishly stitched emblems on behalf. They scarcely kept pace with my performance and wondered if one sash would suffice. I worked toward the day, the great day, when God and Miss Falling Confetti and Dancing Cherubim would drape my badge-laden sash across my chest and welcome me into his eternal kingdom where I could humbly display my badges for all eternity. But some thorny questions surfaced. If God saves good people, how good is good enough? God expects integrity of speech, but how much? What's the permitted percentage of exaggeration? Suppose the required score is 80 and I get a 79. How do you even know your score? He goes on. Most people tend to view life with God even as some sort of a merit-bad system. Even after we have become a Christian, sometimes the idea can creep in. But the way I achieve God's blessing upon my life is by being good enough. My spiritual faith was formed in a church that conveyed that exact message, although never in words. And I spent a lifetime trying to undo it. First thing we do to respond to God's grace is to receive it. And maybe today is a time where you say, you know what? I understand that God's grace is offered to me fully in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness for my sin and a new life with him. And I want to receive that. If we've already done that, then there's probably just one question remaining. Let's end here. All right. But what if I want to give it to God? What if hearing this story, instead of shutting down my desire to do great things for God, in a way actually stirs them up more? Because I'm just in awe of what God has done for me. Again, that is not a movement of the heart to be despised. But how do you do that without letting it be poisoned by our self-aggrandizement schemes? I would say this. There is much we can and should do for God. But only after we sit and wonder. Our mouth agape. Our legs taken out from under us. What God has done for us. That's why we have times like this at the beginning of our week. God doesn't need our attendance. He has the United Choirs of Angels offering him worship. He doesn't need us. But we need to be reminded at the beginning of this week that the most important thing about me, the greatest thing about me, is not what I do, not anything I've accomplished, but God's grace has been given to me. And then after I'm in that place, and maybe after I reinforce that understanding with times throughout the week where I am in worship, where I'm praying, where I'm in this word, then, and only then, can I give to God in some way. Normally that's going to be by giving to other people. God sometimes wants us to build something like a temple, but normally he wants us to do something like show the same radical grace to someone else. 
Next week, we're going to see how David did exactly that to a guy the whole world would call a loser called Mephibosheth. David did that because God did this. David showed grace because God first wowed him, bowled him over with his own grace. So if you want to do a great thing for God, come first to God, be humbled again by his grace, and then begin asking God, how do I pay this forward? I don't want to earn this. I don't want to do achievements. I just want to be a person that is a channel of your grace and not just to receive it. We'll pick that up next week as we look at the story of Mephibosheth. It's actually just one or two chapters over in 2 Samuel 9. I encourage you to read that. 